World War Covid. From Weapon World to Peace World. Learner, begin. The Threat Formula 3. America's ritual recall of the assault it suffered at Pearl Harbor kept the global community on the edge of its nuclear seat for the last half century. Our only redemption? That we pulled that easy trigger only twice during our watch, aroused by the utmost provocation. As for Russia and other nuclear powers, never. Moreover, the likelihood of sudden nuclear war approached 100% every day from 1950 to 1970. The absence of accidental and or criminal launches does not correspond to the number of reactor accidents at the same time, even though nuclear attack opportunities were much more numerous than those for reactor control accidents. This statistical anomaly implies an alien control agency superior to the human one, that prevented the corresponding certainty of nuclear war. And perhaps the prevention of any nuclear war on Earth, provided it remains forbidden by this agency. Recent decades of pointless war between the Muslim world and the West were triggered by September 11th. In the same way, Russia's part in the Cold War and Putin's attempt to resume it since were in part justified by the Nazis' thousand-mile assault against Mother Russia. Most of Europe, likewise. The Chinese suffered the same fate at the hands of the Japanese. Just imagine, an overnight invasion from Maine to Florida by superbly organized and ruthless invaders. Is it any wonder that everyone operates on a hair trigger? All the governments of weapon world suffer from PTSD. There is irony in the deduction that President Franklin Roosevelt knew Admiral Yamamoto's attack plan in detail before Pearl Harbor's battleship row was struck. 3,000 American casualties, hundreds of aircraft wrecked and eight obsolete battle wagons sunk in the shallows of Oahu, those losses might have been less painful than those of the next most likely scenario. Had the U.S. battle fleet endured the Japanese attack with fewer losses, at full alert with guns manned and planes aloft instead of its flaccid Sunday routine, it would have sailed to the rescue of General MacArthur and his troops in the Philippines, in accordance with the wishes of battleship admirals and an American public screaming for revenge. For American aircraft carriers, conveniently absent from Pearl Harbor on December 7, along with vital high-speed supply ships and naval oil tankers, plus almost every other surface combat ship the Navy could muster, their aircraft obsolete and pilots novice, their radars primitive, cranky, or non-existent, and their twitchy torpedoes fatally defective, would have convoyed entire divisions of regulars and marines, as well as hundreds of crated aircraft, artillery pieces, and tanks, at least half. The trained cotter and ordnance inventory of the U.S. Somewhere in the West Pacific, beyond friendly support and ensnared in a spider web of fortified Japanese air bases, they would have had to face off against ten enemy aircraft carriers loaded with superb planes and veteran pilots, a like number of modernized dreadnoughts, swarms of submarines and surface escorts bristling with deadly long-lance torpedoes. At that time, bigot American admirals underrated their opponents' prowess, a routine bad habit among the American military. It's obvious, military outcomes will end up worse than expected if one underestimates one's enemy. Out for blood, the Japanese would not have burdened themselves with vulnerable transports. Day-long aerial duels and submarine wolf pack attacks, more imbalanced in favor the Japanese than those at Midway and the Solomon Islands, during which the Americans barely won through heroic sacrifice and miraculous timing, would have alternated with slashing night surface firefights relying on Mark I eyeballs enhanced by exquisite binoculars and brutal training, versus infant U.S. radar technologies, firefights at which the Japanese Navy routinely whipped the Americans during the first half of the war. It would have been the Battle of Tsushima all over again. This time, it would have been the Americans, blinded by their bigotry and lack of radars, who would have succumbed to samurai sailors instead of Russians who lost in 1905 because they stacked ready ammunition loose in their secondary batteries, 
to forestall a surprise torpedo boat attack, that detonated sympathetically during the first long-range hits by Japanese primary batteries. Instead of the shallows of Oahu, America's vital military assets would have sunk into the Pacific Abyss. The survivors who fought their way through to the Philippines would merely have added to Japan's haul of prisoners shamefully abused. Reeling from this debacle, lacking trained cotters for its world-spanning armed forces, the USA would have taken at least another half-decade to achieve 1944 levels of combat skill. Of necessity, Americans would have ignored Europe beyond the static defense of England. We would have had to counter-attack across the Pacific to secure long-range bomber bases for atomic weapons. Unlike us, these Americans would have needed atom bombs to defeat their enemy otherwise unstoppable. As a matter of fact, the Japanese had at least five opportunities to drag the war out for another half-dozen years. Pearl Harbor, stage a third-wave attack and bomb essential fuel depot and repair facilities into rubble. Savo Island, Guadalcanal, after having gutted its cruiser escort, close in on the defenseless American invasion fleet and destroy it. Midway, send in the Japanese battleships first, to act as air power bait in small, carefully spaced carrier hunter-killer and shore bombardment groups, instead of in the rear as mediocre escorts for Japanese carriers. Komanderski Island, sink a self-crippled American cruiser and its escorts, then destroy every enemy afloat and facility ashore in nearby seas, and Leyte Gulf, Philippines, close in with overwhelming firepower and destroy the vulnerable American invasion transports left unguarded. But Admiral Yamamoto, a brilliant samurai and gentleman scholar, was infected during his visit to America with the conviction of ultimate U.S. victory, to such an extent that he convinced his admiral disciples, even beyond the grave, that the triumphs listed above were not worth the risk involved. In any case, an American submarine could have delivered a nuke to Tokyo Bay, Aitajima, or some other symbolic target, on a suicide run, if necessary, just as readily as a B-29 bomber that might never have taken off for Hiroshima or Nagasaki from the Mariana Islands because those atolls were out of reach of U.S. amphibious forces, defeated according to this hypothesis. For the umpteenth time, policymakers on both sides agreed to fail at pre-war planning and negotiations. They chose passive-aggressive militarism instead of the active pursuit of peace, precisely as we are failing today. All sides committed these errors, rubber-stamped by the castrated League of Nations, long before the Manchurian incident triggered the second, sick, world war a decade before Pearl Harbor. Our United Nations and its Security Council, certified purveyors of peril, are not much better. Not one of today's governments can claim world peace as its primary goal. None can claim legitimate sovereignty except at gunpoint with our reluctant consent, as during an airline hijack. While the first-rate powers are spellbound by the dynamics of military aggression, the weak are equally tempted to resort to it as long as the great powers forbear. High-ranking fools, the 1990s Yugoslav aggressors, for example, argued that this kind of restraint was a sign of weakness to be exploited. This dilemma is crucial. When weapon sectarians block the path of peace, they should be disarmed using minimal force. This is more a question of rapid police intervention than of a military one carried out too late, as we have grown accustomed to witness. Questionable expedients may be judged legitimate, like arresting tin pot dictators in their bedclothes, Assad, and pumping sleeping gas into kangaroo legislatures, the Bosnian Serbs, before they vote for war. However, we should rely on world court jury trials for final say as to the legitimacy of these tactics. Local moderates should be encouraged in every other way. After enduring enormous sacrifices, a defeated nation may achieve strategic superiority over its tormentor. It may come to resemble its enemy in more ways than it would care to admit, 
since military imitation is the sincerest form of defiance. Revived losers may challenge old enemies in a grudge rematch. In that case, they have merely traded places, operant parameters remain the same, mirrored but otherwise undisturbed. Another factor influences the threat deterrence formula. It is the count of person years wasted in combat, subtracted yearly from the productive pool of workers and permanently from the roster of the living. Had humanity not squandered the titanic effort and resources on warfare, we could have wasted the same amount of energy in idleness and license, yet everyone could earn a comfortable living from a 20-hour work week and a few years of such each. We could pursue our topics of passion for the rest of our lives, or do nothing but watch TV, and the whole world would find itself much better off anyway. Another crucial factor in the weapon formula is the political cohesion that binds a proletariat to its elite. It cannot be faked or coerced for long. Defeat looms if the info-proletariat refuses to support its elite spontaneously. Popular discontent must remain muted. In all but the worst-case scenarios, see boom above, info-elites sacrifice very little compared to the benefits they gain. They reserve this privilege for the info-proletariat. In the long run, public opinion must remain apathetic, even for overly long and costly wars, and what war isn't. As was the case during the world wars, sick, once elite youths get massacred as frequently as proletarian ones, their grieving parental decision-makers refuse to opt for peace. After all, they have already made the supreme sacrifice. They won't give up until their nation has been stomped flat and they are shoved up against a wall. We must forestall this ultimate sacrifice and turn it into a celebration shared by the same actors. The number of well-trained warriors, times their rate of fire, divided by resupply deadlines, times cruising and battle speeds, divided by the defender's throw weight, his ability to dig in, armor plate, maneuver, evade detection and replace casualties, times. These and many other constants and variables make up an intricate threat formula that weapon managers refine compulsively. Colonel T. and Dupuy attempted to formulate this equation in Understanding War, Paragon House Publishers, New York, 1987. He didn't quite make it. His results, bearing on the Iraq War and predicting enormous American casualties under heavy fire from Saddam Hussein's army, were not predictive. The definitive version of this formula exists, it just hasn't been openly published yet. In a process strikingly similar to Darwinian selection, alternate bursts of technological innovation favor the means of attack and defense. These and many other variables make up a complicated threat formula. Morale, morality, and cultural factors, for example, personal eagerness to kill despite God's forbidding it, and the ritual default to ultimate self-sacrifice, may turn out to be just as important as details of military hardware and strategy, for better or for worse. The Japanese and the Celts believed as much, to their ultimate defeat by more pragmatic combat adversaries. Thousands of years ago, the Chinese philosopher Sun Tzu, perhaps the ultimate military theoretician on earth, listed five non-negotiable requirements for victory. One politics, that which makes people stand alongside their leaders, even at the risk of their lives. Two weather. Three terrain. Four commander, his particular traits, and. Five military doctrine, organization, discipline, ordinance, and logistics. It seems that everything else, good or bad, can be endured, made up from scratch or ripped off from the enemy. Slightly modified, this list, and the rest of his philosophy of struggle, could just as well serve the goals of world peace. Modern nuclear, scalar, and biological warfare nullify every known form of military defense. Weapon technicians have optimized the threat formula to such an extent as to render it suicidal. Modern armies, harmies. 
with their superb warriors, exquisite weaponry and extraordinary paramilitary and para-civilian supports, run the risk of total collapse under a reign of computer, nuclear, meteorological, biological and propaganda bombardment. As a result, they are less and less likely to achieve a satisfactory outcome, even while their maintenance costs spiral out of control. It sickens me to witness infantry patrols posted to urban malls and transit stations after the latest terrorist atrocity, combat vehicles parked on street corners and fighter jets thundering over cities, the least effective of preventive measures. Yet they're very effective to get one's own people to tolerate intolerable circumstances. The collapsing logic of this value system vindicates learner. Virtually overnight, the time-honored paraphernalia of weapon states has become obsolete, its glories, justifications, and tactics, futile. If you've followed this line of reasoning, you should be just as frightened as excited by now. Everything we have been led to believe has grown too bitter to hold down. It is up to us to come up with better alternatives. It's about time. It is time we optimized the armchair formula at the expense of the threat formula. This project might seem unrealistic and even alien to our way of thinking. But we can't let that stop us. We have had so little practice at peace, unlike total war at which we are experts. To succeed at peace, we must reclaim ancient expertise long forgotten and retrieve it from the collective superconscience that has never forgotten anything. Until the terms of this debate become common knowledge, weapon mentors will harness the delusion of hypnotized masses to cancel it. Learners won't replace them until global majorities agree to resolve their problems in unison and in peace despite incessant calls for more war and less peace. In the meantime, most isolated attempts at individual, institutional, and mystical improvement will fail, engulfed by the social contradictions that surround them. Learners will be duty-bound to defy weapon mentality in all its manifestations, sink weapon mythology into the depths of the collective conscience, recodify our laws and train up to dependable peace. Let many warlike sacrifices be converted into peaceful celebration. Tell yourself, I am ready. Find peers just as ready to discuss and broadcast learner. Once enough people have grasped these ideas and rallied around them, the next steps will reveal themselves clearly, each in its perfect time and place, carried out by the individual or group most qualified to do so with excellent success. Comment. Mark Mulligan at Comcast.net